actually charted. I mean, I ended up going to London for the first time um, to do Top of the Pops. Like all of these things were happening around me and I had really no idea like what was going on. So I, I, I did attempt to re-record It's Over Now. They, you know, finally appeased me and let me re-record it and they hated it because they were like, it's too like thought, you know, this being perfect or that being perfect. And the first go round was like a vibe and that's what we want. Through those processes of making those two albums, it really took me a while to be able to separate myself from what I was doing as an artist and really look at things and, and hear things objectively because I was way too close to it. I was way too inside of it. And I went from zero to 60, basically. Hello and welcome to the Hot Girls podcast with me, Lex on the decks. This is the final episode of season two and we saved something really magical a conversation with the incredible Ultranate. She has had a phenomenal career in music and what I love about this conversation is the way we explore her career in so much detail from how she actually built the confidence to be a singer in the first place and her journey as a writer, what it was like having one of the biggest singles of the year that's, that's then stayed to be so well known now, what it's been like moving between underground house music scenes and then mainstream pop scenes and how she's kind of had to adjust to those various spaces. It's a really brilliant conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And just to say that as we come to the end of season two, we move into season three in January. I've already started recording and some of the interviews are really special. You learn so much. So really excited for that. Until then, have a great Christmas, Happy New Year and 2021. I think we're all ready for it. Let's go. Ladies, Listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls with Lex on the deck. We in the mix. It's fire. Going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. I know it's crazy, right? So I didn't have to do any work because I feel like you were destined for stardom (laughs) with that name. I've heard that my whole career. And I had no idea. I fell into it by accident. So it's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, um, what's your favorite place that you've ever lived? Oh, well, you know, I still live in Baltimore and I've lived here since my childhood. And the beauty of that is that I get to travel everywhere. So I've never really felt the need to move anywhere else because I, you know, I love being able to come home to family and friends and just places where I grew up and, and where I have memories and, and history, as it were. And I get to travel everywhere else around the world. So um, there are places that feel like home to me, you know, like in Spain, I, I spent a lot of time in Italy and Spain in the South um, throughout the summers over the years. And so going to those places are like going home. Mm-hmm. It sounds it sounds cliche, but you know Ibiza does feel like you know one of my homes that I look forward to to experiencing every year. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm so heartbroken. It's not even funny, and it's not even for the party aspect. Really, it's just um, there's just a sense of of beauty and calm and um, spiritual energy on that island and being in the Mediterranean and in that very rustic environment. You know, the whole party aspect is great. I'm a party girl, so I'm not downplaying that. But it's great to be able to create that balance. Mm. I agree. Ibiza, as soon as you land. That's it. It's just the energy that hits you that you can't Mm -hmm. 
You can't explain it. You cannot explain it. And I've tried for many years. And it's so crazy now that everybody has heard of it because it used to be like this, you know, best kept secret, you know, mm-hmm. to a lot of people here in America. And I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to Ibiza. And they'd be like, where? You know, because it could have been like Planet Mars. They had no clue. But now everybody knows about it. So I'm a little terse about that. <laughs> You're like, it's been my place for a while, but okay. Well, leading on from that, what's your, you don't have to name names because I'm sure you've got allegiances to lots, but what's your favorite kind of club? What is your like mecca oh. type of club? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very Pisces, you know, Pisces, Aries, and the Pisces side of my personality is very mutable. So I really just enjoy a lot of different kind of energies and styles. So I, I, I can acclimate very easily to a lot of different things. So I'm into anything that, you know, could be like the super, super club that's like really elaborate and, and amazing. As long as it has great sound, mm-hmm. that is like job one. <laughs> it's gotta sound great and not loud, not just being loud. It's, you know, great sound is not about loud. It's about the resonance in the system. It's about the warmth. Um, it's about that thunder, you know? So mm-hmm. if it has a great sound system, I'm already sold. And then, you know, if we're lucky enough to get some like great light, light show situation, the design aspect is really dope. That's really, really important to me. Size is not, not really such a big deal. It can be a tiny little venue or a super club, as long as it has those elements. And then it, it becomes about the people that are in it and mm-hmm. the music that's played. That is everything right there. So it's really about everything that goes into it as opposed to the the space by itself. Okay. So I want to start with your musical career and I want to start like right, right at the beginning. (laughs) Um, When did you first discover that you could sing? About four years after I made my first album. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I know it sounds absolutely crazy because by then I was out of my state of shock. I, you know, I came into the music business so in such a charmed and bizarre way because I had no idea, no inclination to be in the music business, to be a singer or songwriter. I had no idea about those talents. I was going to school for medicine. I had just graduated from high school. And my whole curriculum in high school was geared towards the medical professions. So I was already taking college courses while I was still in high school. And then when I graduated, I started university. And at the same time, I discovered the nightlife and club culture. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, obviously that was a lot more interesting and a lot more fun than being in university. And and it was a really tough time in university for me because I had taken all of those uh, college courses while I was still in high school. When I went to university, I wasn't starting as a freshman purely 100%. I was starting kind of in the in-between place of freshman and sophomore, Mm -hmm. which was a lot more demand on me um, than I was ready for. Mm And so I was kind of like, oh, what do I do with all this? Oh, my God, I don't want to work this hard. When I looked at, you know, the studies, I'm like, I don't, I just graduated like five minutes ago. I don't want to work this hard. So I really wasn't 100% into it. And then I discovered club culture and it was like lights and sound system and dancing and all night at 6 a.m. And it's these great people and just this massive energy. 
And that's re- really where I wanted to be. So I just, I stumbled into club culture. I was a club kid. I wanted to dance. I just wanted to hear the me- this really great music. I had built this, this whole new structure of friend groups and like everything. And in that place, I met Tommy Davis of the Basement Boys, three of them, new kids starting their own production company. House music had just started formulating out of Chicago. Um, you know, so you you had like all this really great R&B and, 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 and different kinds of music, actually, in the club that I went to. It was just like whatever was good music to dance to, DJ played. So uh-huh. it was a really epic sound going on there. And then you had these underground like house tracks being made with basically people making music in their basements or in their home because the technology had now enabled small would-be producers to make music without having to bring in like a 13-piece band mm. rings and, and, and all of these things in order to record these tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, the four track was created and so they could put yeah. things on. Well, I was wrecking my brain. I was like, when I'm trying to think of the dates of when the four track kind of came out and then when they... Yeah, so for me, it was like 88 when I started working with the boys. And basically I just went and did an audition and hung out with them. And I sang a song acapella and I wasn't a singer. So it, for this whole idea of like singing a song acapella still wasn't just something simply as me arriving and be like, okay, here it is. It, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that at all. I was just like a kid and I wasn't really a singer. I, I knew that I could carry a tune because I sang in my, in my church choir a little bit, but I wasn't a singer, mm. but they liked what I did. They liked the sound of my voice. It had a very jazzy, bluesy kind of aspect, a raspy kind of deep tone to it. And they, they felt like that had a, a lot more emotion and authenticity to it. And probably because I wasn't a professed um, singer or professional, like I didn't have any of that attitude or whatever that kind of went along with that. And I was just kind of like an open book to experiment. So we started uh, hanging out and we like sat around the table one night and was like, okay, let's write a song. Yay. Here's this idea I've got. And we just started writing the threads. And then, you know, Tommy would contribute and Teddy would contribute. And we came up with this song called It's Over Now. And then they were like, okay, we've got this track, you know, here it is. Just go in there and like, you know, sing something over it. See if you can come up with something. With <laughs> A little son, son. Like, what? Okay. But, you know, it was like, I had nothing to lose. So it was fun yeah. to just like experiment because there were no, there were no rules. There were no uh, demands of anything particular or specific to happen. It was very loose. And the boys made me feel comfortable in that. And so I took this this pad with these lyrics that we just kind of jotted down these words that really meant nothing except it was a story of my first real boyfriend and breaking up with him. And, um, you know, went in there and was like, okay, I got this track, got this beat. Mm, mm, mm. Mm, 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 mm. So it was like, okay, let me just kind of play in between in this place. And so I just found this groove with the, with the lyrics and the melody and just kind of sang it like, blah, 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 blah. and so that became my first single strangely enough that one moment no retakes that was the, that was the one that everybody fell in love with they sent it to tony humphreys in jersey and he blew it up at his club that was like the place back then where all of the labels would come and everybody would hang out and party and at zanzibar and see what new thing uh, tony was playing new underground thing that hasn't been released um, and then he was playing on Kiss FM on the radio and he was playing it on the radio. People were hearing this song. It was very different 
from anything that was out there. So like people were like, what is this song? This bluesy, jazzy, like just thing. That's just like a groove. That's just a bop. You know, what is this mm. thing? And it, it was making noise on both sides of the Atlantic because Kiss was playing, you know, obviously in London. And yeah. Yeah. Norman Jay started playing in High on Hope. I didn't even know. I, I thought of Kiss as very much a UK station. I didn't even know. It was. Yeah. And Tony played for like, you know, both sides. But there's Kiss, uh, Kiss in New York. I'm sure it's still going. Well, maybe not. I don't know. But um, at that time, yeah. So th- just at that time, you could have a song living for a long time before it actually came out and there was still a fervor for it. So a year later, it was signed to Warner UK through my A&R person that the boys had worked with before. She got hired at Warner UK. So Cynthia Cherry and Peter Edge formed this new dance label imprint at Warner in the UK. And so 89, first single came out, this It's Over Now song of mine. And can I ask, a year later after you'd kind of um, released that song, because you made it so quickly, were you like, oh, I want to change things now. I've heard it for a bit. Or were you still like, That's what I'm no. like It took four years to like get used to like even being a singer because I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm there like, <laughs> okay, you wrote that one. Now we need another song. Like, okay, let's write another song. So, you know, I was just kind of going through like on autopilot, but I didn't really like understand or know my art or my talent it was just kind of like a, a wild thing that mm-hmm. you know, just kind of let it do whatever it was going to do try and something put it out. yeah and I was just in a really fortunate circumstance at that time because house music or garage whatever people want to call it garage um mm-hmm. was very new you know so there was no we were writing the template at that time so no one could say well no it's supposed to go like this or it's supposed to go like that there were there were really no no rules and um and I had an album deal suddenly um, after I wrote the second song, I was offered an album deal. So I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and that was for, and that was you and the Basement Boys like as a collective at that point? Yes, yes. They were my production team. So we were in a production, te- production mm-hmm. deal. And that, that first single, It's Over Now, actually charted. I mean, I ended up going to London for the first time um, to do Top of the Pops <sighs> and to shoot the video. So like all of these things were happening around me and I had really no idea like, what was going on? So I, I, I did attempt to re-record It's Over Now. They, you know, finally appeased me to let me re-record it and they hated it because they were like, it's too, like, thought, there's too much, you're mm-hmm. thinking too much in it. Like you're thinking about, you know, this being perfect or that being perfect. And the first go round was like a vibe and that's what we want. So mm-hmm. that ended up being the single. And I made the Blue Notes from the Basement album. And then I made One Woman's Insanity, both on Warner Brothers. And so through those processes of making those two albums, it really took me a while to be able to separate myself from what I was doing as an artist and really look at things and and hear things objectively because I was way too close to it. I was way too inside of it. And I went from zero to 60, basically, Mm. um, in two years, everything completely changed in in terms of what I was doing with my life. I was suddenly no longer going to university and in, in, in medicine. And suddenly I was uh, a, a pop star in yeah. the UK. And I'm like, what? You know, so it, it took a while. It and it while. sounds like, I mean, that decision was almost made for you by that quick journey to success. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, uh, do I want to stay and do medicine? Is this too risky? Or do you just know that you had to just go with oh, it? Oh, no, I definitely, I had that moment. Totally. Um, when the Warner deal ended, which ended 
after the second album, One Woman's Insanity, because my label went, the uh, imprint went from the UK label to the US label. Mm-hmm. And so once I was in that pond with those, those people in those demands of the United States dance music scene, which is was nowhere near the diversity of what was happening in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a much more specific thing. Demographically, you needed to appeal to X. And anything that played in between those places, they didn't really know what to do with it. And so we were coming from a moment of doing this really underground music that just suited our underground scene here in mm-hmm. Baltimore that suddenly became like pop music abroad. It's very strange. And then now we're back, we're at a, we're at a place where we're on a major in the United States that doesn't know, understand, get, or care about underground dance music at all. So we were put in a place where we needed to uh, somehow make the transition in order to suit the needs of the U.S. label. And that needed to be a very specific lane. It needed to be more polished, more pop. It needed to be more, you know, Janet Jackson kind of dance music. And and that's a thing. And we were totally down for that. But we also didn't want to alienate our fan base and those who had gotten us from, you know, our little underground haunts here in Beemore to, you know, being on top of the pop. So that was that was club culture. Yeah. So we didn't want to just alienate that and suddenly try to go off and and be, you know, the next Janet Jackson production team you know mm-hmm. and all of that we, we wanted to find a way to marry the two situations mm-hmm. and that just wasn't possible with the U.S. label they they didn't get it and um there was there was no commitment to it because they weren't a part of it from its origins anyway right. it's very tricky like that mm-hmm. so that didn't work out which is fine because actually I was that put me at the crossroads because by then I had I'd spent about six years of my life doing this and I felt like Okay, you've accomplished some really major stuff here mm-hmm. that you never saw coming. What next? Do you continue in this or do you get back to what your original plan was, which, you know, you're totally at a place in your life where you can do that and, and haven't missed, you know, but a couple of years. But I decided in that moment, even though I was out of a deal and the dance music industry was changing significantly, I decided to stay with it because I felt like all of these things that fell in place were not by my design. They happened because there were universal circumstances putting me in opportunities and situations because obviously that was where I was supposed to be. And so I decided to stay in that and to continue to follow that path and let it lead me. And so it continued to lead me to do what I've always done. I don't have to have the the end goal already figured out exactly, but I need to move towards that plan. Mm-hmm. And so I started working on what would be my third album, even though there was no deal in place. And, you know, but I had a lot of relationships. I had a lot of great relationships with people that I've worked with or, you know, just through my success for the first two albums. Mm-hmm. But we started writing with those who had time and wanted to collaborate. I built this album and I had it about 60% of the way done by the time I did the deal with Strictly Rhythm. Um, Gladys Pizarro, the A&R there, wanted to sign me. And, and we, we being myself and my managers, uh, Bill Coleman and Angelo Scordos at Peace Biscuit, we had decided we weren't going to go try to shop for another major label deal. 
because the music industry was changing so significantly, we didn't feel like I would be served well at a major at that time. We needed to be with an indie, but I needed to be in an indie that had capital because, you know. Yeah. I've been on a major, so obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, that's exactly what's going to happen. Is. And that should happen and the other should happen. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I know what I know what I need. Like, right. I can deliver my part and then I know. Um, right. So Yeah, so yeah. what was, what, what, what stage, stage was Strictly Rhythm at? What kind of a label was it? When you started, well, was at a place where the reason we felt comfortable with going with Strictly is because Strictly had that underground culture really sewn up. Like they, their brand recognition was really great. Um, they also had working capital because they had had success with their, with a lot of their records. They also had maneuverability, which is one thing that you don't often have with a major label because there are systems in place and there's a, a protocols of how things go before they get once they get in the marketplace to get them to market and then once they've gotten to market um so there's a lot of red tape in there yeah and by maneuverability do you mean in timings or in uh, sound or all of all of the above all of it all of it like you can make a decision on a dime and and get that production moving whether it's what song you're going to do, whether it's, you know, who you're going to service it to, you know, how many copies do you need before you put it out there? Who are the pluggers going to be? Who's going to, you know, promote it at radio? Who's going to promote it at billboard? Who's going to do X, Y, and Z? All of these things can be maneuvered and changed or, or whatever on a dime because you're dealing with a much smaller company mm-hmm. uh, that's self-contained as opposed to a massive entity that has departments and all of these departments have to coordinate together and that's wonderful when it works when it doesn't work it's a nightmare and Mm -hmm. you know I've been on both sides of those coins so you know to go into this situation where I've had I have this company that has a lot of great street cred that was awesome and they had connections abroad and great credibility there um, they had working capital, so I would have the funding that I needed to create the kind of work that I needed to do and for them to be able to work it once the product was done. And then they would just let me get on with what I did because they didn't need to micromanage me or A&R me in the same way that a, a new act needed to be A&R. A little bit more supported, yeah. Yeah, because I was already self-contained. I mean, I was, I was a writer you know, getting more and more, more and more well-versed with production and working with producers that we wanted to work with and coming up with the material that I wanted to come up with, designing my our own art. Like we were behind a lot of that stuff. My team were doing it. Like no one was pulling those strings for yeah. us. So we were already self-contained in, in a way that a lot of artists aren't when they're first signed to a label. So Strictly just kind of let us get on with what we were doing. And then when we produced the product, which the first song was free, then then they come in and do what they do. Yeah. When they heard that song, can you remember the, those kind of like early listenings and those early moments? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember did people, kind of crazy, did people know, like, what was it like? You know? In the label situation, it was mainly the A&R. Um, but before we got it to Gladys, it was amongst myself, Lem, Lem and John, who were the producers, and um, Lem, co-writer and all of that. It was amongst us first and Bill, my manager. Between us, we put all of the pieces together, Mm -hmm. which started with just the idea. You know, the first thing is like, well, what do I want my next record after not being on a label for three years? What do you want the first thing that comes out from you to be like? And so I had already had that 
worked out in my head that I wanted it to be a very guitar oriented kind of song. It was very inspired by R.E.M. Uh, Losing My Religion. <sighs> I heard that song on the radio one day and I was like, you know what? You just, you need a song that just grabs people's heartstrings like that. And it was that melancholic guitar that starts off and trails through the whole mm. song. And then this other guitar going against it with the angst. So I was like, those are the elements that I want to, I want in my next record. That is a very and, special um, song. Yeah. And that's where we started. So the boys, you know, they took, they took those ideas and concepts and we started working with the guitar player. And first was to come up with that bittersweet melody of guitar line. And so we came up with it. It's like, that's it. And then we need the guitar that's working against it. That's the antagonist that just keeps the groove going. And that's when the, that bit came in. So we had like that skeleton. Mm -hmm. And then from that, everything just kind of got built up on top of it. So we had the whole process going. And with my my uh, vocal producer, Danny Madden. So we had all of these great elements in there, did all of that on our own, and then gave a final track to Gladys and the label. And it was very different. It was very, very different because it was not what the sound was at that time in the marketplace, which was intentional because I felt like I've got nothing to lose, like... Let me just, let me just do me. Yeah. I've, got, I've got nothing. <laughs> like, I only it, just learn I can sing <laughs> and I can write. I've got nothing to lose. Like, <laughs> they love it. You know, people love it or they hate it. But, you know, I've got to, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. i got to step out. And I don't want it to sound like anything else in mm. the marketplace right now. So that it's either going to be, it's going to be a gamble and you're either going to win or you're going to crap out. So the label believed in me, even though the song, felt really different from everything else that was out there. They believed in me and they believed the hook was really, really strong. So they were like, okay, let's hit it. Let's go with it. So they pressed up these, these uh, test pressings and just in time for Winter Music Conference that year, they got these special edition, special colored uh, vinyl test pressings out to the key, you know, tastemaker DJs. Mm. And then we all went to Miami for the conference. And that was basically the, you know, that was the moment to know whether it was going to make it or not. And it went bananas mm -hmm. like everywhere on the beach that, that year. It was everywhere. And everyone was like, oh, my God, what is this song? Mm -hmm. What is this? You know, because it also it was before the days of like Shazam or just being able to Google, I guess, like what's the track list? Yeah, there was none of that. Yeah. And, and there was nothing else sounding like it. So as soon as, you know, you're in a party and all of a sudden this guitar starts, and people were just like, oh, this is epic. What the fuck is this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was great. You know, Louis Vega, like, really, really, really smashed it that year. Every place he played, he played that song over and over and over again in the course of a night. And so by the end of the week, it was like DJs were stalking me on the beach. You know, do you have a copy? Do you have a copy? And I'm like, I don't have any copies. <laughs> Like, I don't, it's a beach. I don't have a backpack of vinyl. Carrying vinyl around on the beach. <laughs> my A&R person, they're, they're deciding who gets that and who doesn't. I don't know. It's not my area. But it was like that kind of energy going on. Mm -hmm. So that was very exciting and very validating for me because, you know, it was a big gamble to do such a different kind of uh, song at that time. You know, the safer bet would have been to just follow the lane of whatever was working in dance yeah. music at that time. Um, but I've never done that. I've kind of always gone against the grain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that was, that was it. They were good. 
And then, you know, they made a fortune off it and they made all their money back. I spent a ton of their money making the album and you know, <laughs> they made it back. So they made it back. <laughs> How long were you promoting that single and then the follow-up singles and that, the album in general? Was the timing of that? Well, I didn't write, it took me a while to come up with the follow-up single, which ended up being Found a Cure because Free was so bananas in the marketplace everywhere for so long. Like it just was like, you know, like the sustaining the high note. It was just up there for a long time. It just won't go away. It won't go down. It was just, you know, it was like just this crazy wave around the world. So I didn't want to put a second single out right away behind it. You know, I wanted to kind of give Free more of a moment to... Mm start to slowly descend a little bit which it never really has <laughs> it wasn't descending so I was like okay well, I guess I'm gonna get on with it you know what I mean and I didn't want the next song to be something that was anticlimactic mm-hmm. and I didn't want the next song to be an attempt to do free point 2.0 yeah um, because I felt all of those were like would be just didn't know authenticity there and I didn't want Free to feel like it was a flute because it was actually part of a whole album project. But I had written 60% of the album before I had even written Free. And it now needed to encom- be encompassed in a total body of work as opposed to there. this is just a snapshot of who I am as an artist. But there's a complete body of work for a fuller picture. Mm. And so I wrote Found a Cure maybe about a year later. Plus I was touring like crazy. Like mm-hmm. my schedule was bananas. And I, and I was probably a little out of my head and out of body with exhaustion as well. Yeah. Um, so that made it difficult also for me to just concentrate and write. And the, and the same for Mood to Swing, for Lemon John, you know, they also reap the benefits of having, you know, a hit like that in the marketplace because they were in great demand also. Mm-hmm. Writing sessions and production. And they were a bit like, ah, you know, too. So, but we knew we had to get it together and get another single. So we finally you know, after a couple of tries with different things, wrote Found a Cure. And we were like, yes, this is the story. And this is the song that makes sense after a song like Free and makes sense within the story of this album. And then it finally came together. But it took about a year later to do that. And then Mm -hmm. I finished up the album, which came out, I believe, in 98, something like that, 98, 99. Um, and, And we decided New Kind of Medicine would be the third single mm-hmm. um, produced by D-Influence. And it was just a really great time because, yeah. you know, these songs, I felt like the the attention to the the actual uh, stories behind them and, the, and, and the, the, uh, the mood of them. And, you know, we weren't in, in the ADD culture where people are like, oh, they, you know, they don't have the attention on the dance floor. You just mm-hmm. got to, you know, a top line and, then, and that's it. And yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot of dance music is gone. And I think that's been part of the, the downfall of, of dance music in terms of creating new classic material. You have to have like something that hits the emotion that people, you know, hold on to that anchors them to, to yeah. the music in a way. And so these were really meaty kind of tunes that I was writing and people were, you know, loving them and really getting them and they were impacting people's lives. And that's what made it really important at that time. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I think so true as well. So much of the dance music you hear now, you're like, yeah, the, the tune is catchy, but what are those lyrics? <laughs> like, They don't mean anything. No one thinks that or no one says that, except for maybe when they're really not super with it. Versus, yes, yeah, so those kind of tracks that you were creating, 
that stay with you as an expression of a human experience and therefore stay they're classically relevant because every time you hear them you're still feeling something yeah um so then after you finished the process of that album did you keep working with the same producers or how did you kind of navigate your creative landscape after that the next phase was really uh quite interesting because the music business went through a massive shift and that's when internet file sharing napster the demise of a lot of record labels, the whole model of physical sales, everything went belly up. Mm. And the music business went spiraling and no one knew if there was going to even be a business. Well, somewhere in the midst of all of that, we were releasing and I was now moved from, it was also a stream delay with getting my second album out because I was on AMPM in the UK when I released Situation Critical, the album that Free and Found a Cure and New Kind of Medicine, all those songs were on. A&M, the bigger the, the parent label of AMPM was dissolved as many late many of the majors were dissolved at that point and mm-hmm. they were merged into the few that were left standing. So AM was merged into um Universal or mm-hmm. something, I don't know at the time, but mm-hmm. it just was not a good moment in the music business. Yeah. But the album was ready and they were like, let's go, we need to release this album, blah, blah, blah. We put out the first single Desire, it did well. But it wasn't the same timing and it wasn't the same fervor because the music business was in just dire straits at that point. And really, it was very confused at that time, right? People just had no idea what, uh, what was, was going on. It was anyone's guess. It was anyone's guess. The folks at the new label, again, like I had experienced when I went to Warner US, they had no affiliation with the start of this project. One of the things that, you you know, many right. people in, in on major labels will tell you is that it's all about the label feeling a connectivity and a loyalty to a project that mm-hmm. they have been a part of building and creating. And if that's not there, you're kind of in trouble. And so, you know, they put out Desire. We got that out. It did what it was going to do. We put out a second single. Stranger Than Fiction album came out. Twisted was uh, did really well. But there was still just that weird moment going on with the industry as a whole. So through the Stranger Than Fiction album, we did well. But at that point, I decided it's time to go completely independent because Mm -hmm. this is all a mess and no one knows what is going on. So since that point, I have been releasing my own albums. And so the, the marketplace is much smaller because obviously being completely independent, I don't have the the big machine. Yeah that big engine to get it out to all of my fan base that's that's scattered around mm. the globe. That's the tricky part of being completely independent. That's where a major does come in handy because they can harness all of your fan base everywhere simultaneously and upstream the project to, to get it out to all of those people. But just that time had gone by. And at that point I was on the wrong side of 25 for most um, mm-hmm. major labels. So, you know, that was going to be a factor. And, and then that all depended on who was left standing in that, in all of the madness that was going on with that. So that's where those things were. And I released albums after that. And after that, I went and did a project with Tommy Boy Records, which was also a, a mini major, as we call them, indie, mm-hmm. a big indie out of New York. And I put out my Grand Silk and Thunder album in partnership with them. Did really well with my singles, Automatic, and a few others that came out after that. We did a, a remix album after that point. 
So, you know, I was still keeping things moving, still trying to keep moving. I did my hero worship album. I did Black Stereo Faith. With the auto, the video for um, automatic, did you? Was that your vision as well? <laughs> no, no, that I can't take credit for that one. That one was um, I was on the shoot for um, my "Loves the Only Drug" video, which was on my Grime Silk and Thunder album. And my makeup artist was a friend of my manager's. His name's Carl Giant, and my manager had put me with Carl to do my makeup for it. And Carl and I hit it off so well; like we fell in love that day. And he was so talented. He's like, you know what? I've got this really amazing idea for a video for you. And I was like, really? Let's talk about it. You know, so we did. And he really did have some great ideas. So they were all his ideas. And he did all of the makeup. That was the first video that he had ever shot. He arranged all of the the costuming. Like he did the whole thing. It was all his baby. So yeah, that, that kind of started his career off in that, in that area. Nice. Um, it's funny hearing you. Oh, I find it interesting. So I have a kind of corporate job as well as DJing and doing this as well. And I think a lot of a label is a business, an engine, a corporate entity in the same way that any other big company is. Absolutely. But because it's in the creative world, I think you can often forget that how that works, you can be subject to, and I'm thinking of it particularly at the moment because of the environment we're in right now, and we're like about to go into a recession, a lot of corporate companies and different structures are going through restructures. And I've never really thought about the fact that music labels go through restructures and artists and producers and managers can be vulnerable in that in the same way as an individual in a corporate company, you can be vulnerable. Absolutely, more so maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you, and this would have been particularly, I think, when you're in the intensity of your touring periods, but how did you find balancing a personal life with that? Did you find you had much space for it or did you find you had to just kind of be like, I'm working for these few years? No, I think I did it. I think I've done a, a great job of finding balance with the two because probably because I've been doing it for so long, I know how to to manage my time better as I've, as I have uh, done it more and more as the years mm. have gone by in the early nineties, it was just kind of manic. And obviously when you're in the, in the throes of any hit record, it's pretty manic. Mm. Um, and you really have to have a team behind you that know how to balance things for you. Um, as far as scheduling, you know, whether it's a day of interviews or, you know, what we used to do called in stores when you had to like show up at record stores and like sign autographs all day and take pictures all day and things like that are, are, can be pretty exhausting or Mm -hmm. you're doing three gigs in one night touring, you know, wherever, or, you know, there's, there's so many moving parts to being an artist that people don't realize um, and I, and I still get inundated with things now. Like there, you know, in any of my socials in the DMs, there's probably like a million requests for vocal, for drops, you know, can you do a drop on my radio station or whatever? And in their mind, it's so simple. And something that would take you yeah. only a few minutes, but cumulatively, when you've got a gazillion of them, which I'm not complaining about, because, you know, that means that people care. But um, in in practice, it becomes a lot of work to try to manage all of that. And then you've got to do all of these things over here that are on deadlines. I'm writing. I need to bounce these vocals down. I need to get them to the engineer. I need to coordinate contracts with producers, you know, collaborators or whatever. Like there's so many moving parts Mm. um, 
that it can be really stressful. And it really comes down to having a team. So I've always had a really good team in place that worked with my needs for balance. So like when I got to a place in my life where I wanted to get married and, and have a child, like we planned for those things, which is like really crazy. And it doesn't work like this for every artist because some artists are just like completely nuts. And, you know, but I, I have a great relationship with my management. So we work as a team and I know that their job is to make sure that my life is good Yeah. on the personal side, as well as the business side, because I can't be effective on the business side if my personal life is a mess. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting married or, you know, I want to have a baby. And so let's plan for that. What are we going to do? We need to get the pictures taken. We need to get all the music done. <laughs> like all of these things working backwards. Yeah. And you're like, and then there's going to be a period of time where I am not available. Absolutely. But I've got all these great pictures shot. I've got all these great videos shot. Everything is great. So by the time I actually have to physically be seen by people, I am like back in a place where I feel comfortable with that. And you know, that's that, that really happens only if you have a really good team around you that is, you know, the machine is all working together. Yeah. And then you've collaborated with so many people. Can you talk to me about some of the some of your collaboration highlights and artists that you've really enjoyed working with and where you felt like this is a good creative like relationship? Oh man, there's been so many. I think the one of the most important ones and earliest on definitely was my first production team with Basement Boys. I mean, you know, coming out of the gate, not knowing anything about, about being a musician, an artist, a songwriter, or any of that that could have been a really tricky experience. So um, I feel very fortunate that they were my first experience in that because they afforded me the time to grow in my art. Um, so I'd have to put it with them first. And then from there, I would say my local producer, Danny Madden, that I've worked with for many, many years and brought him in on many projects to produce my vocals and the backing vocalist because those productions that he brought to the table, his experience and expertise as a vocal producer specifically, helped me to learn my voice and to hear it in a different way and to learn how to um, be comfortable with it and to get out of it what I needed to get out of it. Um, He also brought an amazing team of vocalists to a lot of my tracks that are part of the secret sauce that is what what made a lot of songs, you know, really, really impactful Mm -hmm. because it's a production value that you get from a lot of those songs. And then in terms of like producers, I would, you know, people like Nona Hendrix, um, you know, working with another woman um, that was in a position of production where most of the time it's, it's been mostly, you know, the boys, mm-hmm. guys, you know, kind of, you know, uh, that was a really great experience to finally be able to work with a woman and not just any woman, but a woman that I grew up idolizing mm-hmm. as part of LaBelle and knowing her history and you know, from the visuals to the music that they did and what they stood for. Like, that was a moment where I was like, oh my God, you're in the studio. (laughs) 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 What is happening? I mean, it's like your whole life has come full circle. Just, just nuts, you know, um, working with George when, when, when I met, uh, boy George, that was very, uh, spiritual for me as well, because you know, the first time I stood on stage to try to sing anything was in my high school. And I sang Mistake Number Three by Culture Club. And so, you know, I lived and breathed Culture Club when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I used to dress like a 
I don't even know what the hell I dressed like, but it was just a mess. And it was, I have know, a vision now. Somewhere between culture club and Madonna at that time. Okay. So, Did you have the fingerless gloves? Like the Madonna? What? Come on with it. Yeah. <laughs> stockings. It had to be a little ripped up. Yeah. I mean, I was giving everybody the business and writing on every piece of clothing, like nothing got away. Got some magic marker writing on it. But it was part of like learning my art and all of that. I love this like rock and roll ultra nate. It was totally my thing. I'm totally about it. It still sneaks in there. I mean, you know, when I wrote three, it was a rock and roll song. Like, Mm. Change was the drums in order to make it housey. But like a lot of times I'll write from a rock perspective. Yeah. I love hearing that in an artist though, when you, I just really like hearing what inspires people because it is often not exactly what you'd expect, particularly when it sounds quite different, but then you can start to hear the influences and you're like, okay, yeah, I can hear that. I can hear the guitar. Um, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, you know, those, those are some moments in Lenny Kravitz, obviously crazy. Yeah. I haven't worked with Nile in the studio, but working with Nile at performances or his mm-hmm. events with Nile Rogers from Chic, again, you know, people that I grew up with, and them being a part of the fabric of the music that I grew up on yeah. and that influenced me into into now have my life navigate into a place where they are a part of my art. Mm. What is happening? Yeah. How does that happen? So yeah, it's 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 a little it's fun and crazy at the same mm. time. Something that's quite magical, I think, of all the names that you've mentioned as well is they're all like yourself, still creating, still making music, still really loving music, still experimenting with different things. And that's a real... Some of the lesser known people, like um, like Al Mack, he's a New York DJ, a New York producer, not DJ at all. Totally producer, songwriter. Put out quite a few, you know, house hits in the 90s. Like working with Al, his sound, like people teach you things on so many different levels, but like his sound was so well-produced when I listen to his songs that we did eons ago, listen to them now, they sound amazing still. A million years later, they sound amazing because his production sound was so wonderful and professional and so well done and well executed. Mm-hmm. And so those things helped my ear also. The way that he produced my vocals all the time, and he always knew how to get the best out of me vocally. Those there are certain things in, some, in certain relationships and collaborations where you're learning so many different things on different levels. And and he definitely could always get great vocals out of me. We had a great writing relationship, and then what he did production wise, sonically, was just always spot on. So things like that, and then working with. Uh, bands like D-Influence, who are really great soul musicians Mm -hmm. and really amazing producers. I flourished again under that, you know, collaboration with them. And we worked together multiple times throughout the years. And in fact, one of the songs that's coming out soon that I'm doing, a song called Supernatural, was actually put together from Kwame of D-Influence, some young kids, new kids that he's working with on the production tip. And so the relationship still continues and Mm -hmm. it's evolved you know, this is still evolving through time. It's wonderful. Speaking of the new kids, um, Hedy Wan sampled Free recently. He's obviously a a big artist in the UK. In that kind of process, did you, did he create the track and then you heard it once it had been created or did they clear that they wanted to sample it? I mean, presumably his producer, I don't think he produces, but how did that process happen? And And is that surreal when you hear someone reinterpret your song in that way? Well, 
the thing is, um, people had been reinterpreting free on their own for quite a while. Right. Okay. Again, my inbox right now probably has like three people sending me their interpretation for me to listen to and, you know, a bless and to bless for them, you know? Um, so that's been happening for a while. So I've been kind of used to hearing that Mm. with the way that that process happened for Hedy One, they sent their already fully produced song over. So because they do it that way so that that we can decide on how much of our music they're using and then base that on what we should ask for in the deal. And you kind of negotiate from there. Right. So yeah, their track was already done. And I thought it was amazing. I'm like, you know, that's what you really want to happen as a songwriter. You want your music to live into perpetuity and to continue continue to be used and utilized. And, and it's generational. You know, it, it is now moved on to a different generation or a different demographic of kids that are now exposed to that song. And a lot of them may have grown up on the original. They may recognize the, the sample, which is probably, you know, the main reason that they wanted to use it because it's a highly recognizable sample. Yeah. Um, and there's a benefit for them and for me for that. So yeah, for me, it's a win-win. And it's been sampled um, a couple times uh, before that. And then since then also. Mm. As a singer and as an artist, um, all the work that I've known of yours and that I've can, uh, read about has been very much from you. Have you ever done, um, because I was reading about different artists who sing on songs and they don't have it attached to them and their artist label. Have you ever done work in that way or been interested in working in that way? Or have you always been very, you know, if it's my music, like I want it to be everything that I want it to be and attached to me as an artist? Um, I've done those outside things um, where it was written, song written by someone else. I mean, I did If You Could Read My Mind, um, which was written by Gordon Lightfoot back in the 70s and reworked for the Studio 54 movie um, that came out on Miramax back in the early 2000s, which was a a really, you know, a big hit and a great uh, project to be on. So they have happened. Um, I've re-recorded, I've covered a few songs that I, that I just really dug. Like, you know, when I did Automatic, that's Point of Sisters, obviously attached to me as an artist. To mm-hmm. my, It was for my album, um, but not written by me. So there are those I've done, like I said, some, uh, I did Boy George's, um, I specialize in loneliness many, many years ago for a previous album. And I do do some projects that I'm not attached to at all, but I really have to like the project and I really have to like the song. It has to make sense or I'm not interested in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask being, and you mentioned it a bit earlier, being a female often surrounded by male producers. Do you think that had an impact on you, whether it be positive or negative? Did you ever feel like you needed to prove anything or, or find that you were in any way limited by that? Never felt limited in any way. Again, I would say, you know, my career in a lot of aspects has been a charmed experience in that way. Because 99.9% of the people that I have worked with, um, they come to the table with respect for who I am and what I do. And I don't, I think you get into those kind of issues when you're not feeling respected and appreciated for what your talent is, what your value you bring to the collaboration. Mm. Um, so as long as everybody's clear about that, we have no problems. <laughs> we <We're> good. <laughs> right, yeah. 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 And um, what are you working on at the moment creatively and what's what's coming up from a release point of view? 
Oh, let's see. Well, I mentioned Supernatural. Yes. That's, uh, that's going to be coming out soon. And I've done, I've re-recorded Free, actually, which I never wanted to wow. do, never was interested in doing. Um, because, you know, obviously people are still so attached to the original, which is wonderful. And I love everything about that. So I didn't feel like, you know, there was really a reason to do that until we got close to 2020. And then I was like, 2020 is going to be a very impactful year in some kind of way. So, <laughs> you know, right, if we're going to do it now, now I think would be the time to do that. So I re-recorded the vocals, got back in with my vocal producer on the song, which is Danny Madden. Mm-hmm. And brought in the, the the same background vocal team, the A team, um, so that you know the, the context and the feel of the song and everything is in the same pocket, but given some new nuances and, and mm. some fresher uh, bits and bleeps there. I'm also working on my my next album, which will be number ten, which I cannot believe. I mean, oh. wow! Congratulations! <laughs> that is, that is that so amazing. Nuts. So nuts, and that's called Glass Houses, and so. I got a lot of writing done, additional writing done over these last couple months in lockdown. Uh-huh. Good to have something to focus on. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, let me just, you know, what I can control is, you know, getting some writing done. Yeah. These productions done. So that's what I did. And I, and I wrote quite a few new songs to add to the possibilities as we put that album together. So that's been very inspiring to get that stuff done. In music, I'm I'm so inspired by so many different women, just really strong, beautiful women like Chaka Khan, and then and then even like some of the the younger kids coming out like Lizzo, and you know just really doing their own thing, doing it yeah. on their own terms. Um, but I still, you know, people like Chaka who are classic artists who who have done it, who have seen it all, and yeah. done it all, still look and sound flawless. Like mm. that makes me feel inspired because I've been doing this a, a long time. And I feel like I still have so much more, so many more songs to write, you know, God willing, you know, I'm still here to do that. You know, I'm just, I see so many things around me and and it's just so, you know, I just take it all in as a sponge and just, you know, I'm trying to disseminate the bad from the good and, and mm. make sure that my energy that I'm putting out is good energy, you know, because yeah. out there somewhere I'm inspiring someone. So I yeah. need to make sure I'm on point. A hundred percent. I think it only takes one person to remind one other person to remind one other person of how different you can handle a situation or the, the positive energy that you can bring to something. And then they get inspired by you and the chain, the chain exactly. goes on. It's just, you know, it's just a little tiny blurb, you know, but that little tiny blurb that you put out can be so impactful to someone mm. else. Yeah. And that's what we, that's what we need to, to remember is like, you know, every little bit counts, every moment counts because you just don't know. You mm-hmm. just don't know um, when it's your moment and it's over. Like, what is your legacy going to be? Yeah. You know, what did you put out there to the world? How do you leave people feeling and what do they think of you? Like what imprint do you leave on, on the, uh, on the world? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Do you read? All the you time. Read it. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, what's the book? She used to hate me on the road because I'm always in a book. And she's like, you're the worst. <laughs> There's no fun on the road. You do that damn book. <laughs> you're like, I party too, but and now I'm reading. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm um, what's the book or books that you would most recommend to people? Oh, wow. Let me see. Um, I don't I have a thing for like, <laughs> you're like what? Um, I don't know what, what category these books are in. But I like these series um, and they, strangely enough, all ended up as movies. 
So Anne Rice, I was really big into Anne Rice at one point. In fact, when I was writing my Stranger Than Fiction album, it was inspired by reading all of the Anne Rice novels, mm-hmm. which was the whole vampire and witches and that whole series. Oh, I haven't read any Anne Rice. I had no idea that all of that would become a movie at some point and it became a thing. So I was like, huh, look at that. See? <laughs> it actually became like really serious material and they made movies out of it. So that interview with the vampire, that whole period, that that whole series inspired my Stranger Than Fiction concept, which was about, which was based on romantic novels and stories and the romantic novels. So if you look at the album artwork. And I was just going to say, I love the album artwork. Yeah. So that was what was happening there. And that's how mm-hmm. that kind of related in there. And then um, the series with, um, that also became a movie. Um, the Da Vinci Code. Right, so yeah. All of those books that were in in that story, I was reading all of those. So I like that kind of fantasy kind of thing. Yeah. I like the whole Da Vinci Code thing where you're like dealing with, you know, all of the mystical, the mysticism. Yeah. And it's kind of like all this, you know, secret society crap going on. And um, those are fun things. But then I also read a lot of like self building, you know, getting better at this and better at that and, you know, a million things like that. And then I have all the nerdy, the nerdy kind of stuff that I'm reading that my friends start to look like deer in the headlights when I start talking about um, on the more tech side of stuff. Uh-huh. Like right now I'm reading a, a lot more about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and, and you know, disrupting technologies. Yeah. So broad, <laughs> a broad library. Well, yeah. yeah. If you ever decide to change path, you can just go and work in-house at like a movie buying company and you'll be like, I know that this book is going to be the next big thing. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. I completely stumbled into something. In the music business, I could stumble into something else. <laughs> Watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> um, Alta, thank you so much for talking to us and sharing your story. Where can people find you and follow you if they aren't already to kind of keep an eye out for your releases? Well, I'm pretty active on my social network. So obviously Instagram, I'm under Ultramute. Ultramute Music is everything, you know, Facebook, yeah. Twitter, um, all of the usual suspects. Um, look for my also my Deep Sugar brand, which is my DJ and party event brand. Um, we'll be continuing to do live streams here and there. So tune mm-hmm. in for some of those. And hopefully some real events in the near future oh my god please <laughs> please come on now I need to be on stage like really um because i love it it's not even about like you know it's not even about income or any of that which income is great and um all of that but i miss that 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 relationship with uh with my audience mm, yeah do you ever when you're djing do you ever sing and dj at the same time or oh, are you yeah Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to coming when (laughs) the environment changes. I'll just be a DJ in a box. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And until then, Twitch. (laughs) That's it. Yep. Um, Alternate, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. You have a good one. Be safe. Thank you too. Bye. What up, Lex? Surprise, good women with destiny.